Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. In practice, you know, you're always responsive to that question. You know, am I wasting my time? What am I doing? (laughs) We shouldn't see that hovering anxiety as something that's like, oh, I wish I could just bliss out. That's part of what it means to be a free being, <laughs> that you're actually fundamentally like, so at the risk of failing, like, shit, I wasted five years of my life. That's constitutive freedom. You have to run that risk. Hello, and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. Well, this one I guess we can call uh, a special request, popular demand episode of the podcast. And the reason it's by popular demand, and by popular demand, I mean like maybe a few dozen of you... <laughs> Uh, who emailed us and responded. I I forget when it was. I I think it was at the year in mailbag where I talked a little bit about my, um, I think, somewhere between normal and slightly compulsive obsession with my own mortality and joked about like, that would be a fun podcast. Like, haha, that would not be a fun podcast. And a lot of you are like, no, that would be a fun podcast. And it was in the midst of that, I think, that someone on Twitter um, just replied and said, oh, you should read this book. And the book is called This Life, and it's a book by a philosopher at Yale named Martin Hagland. And the book is a meditation on what the meaning of life is and what the meaning of life is, particularly in a secular tradition in which there is no afterlife, in which this existence is the only one we have. If you're freaking out right now as I say this and think this is too heavy and I want to listen, I would urge you to keep going. And the reason I would urge you to keep going is that I picked up the book with the same thought of like, do I want to read a whole book about this, about a meditation on – my one life being my only life and the fact there will be nothing after it and all the people I love I won't be around for and they will have to mourn my death and I will return to permanent non-existence for the rest of eternity, which even as I say that now, I get like a little panicky. But I actually found the book really moving and actually soothing. Like it gave me – it gave me some kind of inner peace to contemplate Martin Hagelin's arguments partly because – The arguments really are about how beautiful and precious and singular it is to have this life, to be alive as a human on the planet. And I know that I have now ascended out of the daily news cycle into the most ethereal realm of human cogitation, which is meditations on the meaning of life. And we haven't really done this before in the podcast, but I thought it would be a really fascinating departure. I like the book so much. We reached out to to Martin. He agreed to be on the podcast. And we have an hour-long discussion about the thesis of his book. Now, there are two aspects to the book. There's a kind of meditation on the meaning of life and then an argument about what the implications of what we are committed to doing as humans humans ethically on this earth in our one life. And the form of the argument is almost like a parody of lefty thinking that Tucker Carlson or someone would like put in their A block, which is basically if there is no afterlife, then we must have socialism. (laughs) That's basically the that is the logical structure of the argument. If no afterlife, then socialism. So he develops this over the course of the book and I think develops in a fairly persuasive way, although I'm sure that it's not like – it's certainly not definitive as no treatment of this topic ever is definitive. But he's a a really um, distinct voice you'll hear. Like the way he thinks, his enthusiasm for the topic, the intensity with which he engages the most profound questions – It all kind of returned me to what I found so thrilling about philosophy when I first started studying it as an undergrad and what I think all of us who walk through the world as human subjects thinking occasionally in between like scrolling through our phone and rushing home to make dinner think about these questions. We're all confronted with them and he's a really unique voice in this conversation. I found that this book and I hope this conversation for you really changed my perspective. It really has like created a framework in my head that even if I don't subscribe to it, I don't think like he is the final word. I find it really useful to think about and I've been telling friends about it and I hope that you will find it useful as well. I should note he is a philosopher. I was a philosophy major as an undergrad. There is a, a fair amount of references to different thinkers in the philosophical canon. I think we talk about we talk about Hegel, we talk about Marx, we talk about William James. It's not necessary that you know the body of work of these individuals, the philosophical tradition. To the extent they're relevant, I usually explain what idea of theirs is relevant. So don't at all feel, I hope, 
on the outside of a conversation when we do bring up various philosophers. It's not necessary to know them. It's not necessary to have any philosophical training whatsoever, any philosophical knowledge to follow the conversation. All that's necessary, I think, to find this conversation illuminating is just basic openness and curiosity to the most fundamental questions we as humans face. And so good luck with your commute (laughs) while you listen to this. So we'll just have a nice breezy hour-long conversation about the meaning of life. That's right. That's and, right. <laughs> and death, yeah. which looms over all of it, yeah. as your book uh, talks about. Yeah. Did you grow up with a religious tradition? I grew up uh, in sort of Protestant Christianity. Both of my parents are from northern Sweden, uh, which is, you know, rural communities where, where that sort of community was very important. And I grew up in that. I mean, I was never existentially a believer, but I do, <laughs> do think it gave me an appreciation for the social and communal aspects of religious practice, you know, to which I tried to do justice in the book. Yeah, well, you're, and you're, you're, I think you mentioned this, but your parents were believers. Like, Yes, yes. In fact, I mean, I've had this conversation with them, and one of the things my book is trying to do is provide resources like, well, what do you mean by belief in God? Is it secular in my sense or is it religious in my sense? It's, it's approached in a different way. What's actually important? I mean, one of the more controversial claims of the book, which we'll yeah. get into, is yeah. that the people who believe, like, you're almost saying in the book that, like, people who believe in God don't actually believe in God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or, yes. That yes. like they think they believe in God, yes. but actually that the way they make meaning out of their lives yeah. and the way they conduct themselves shows as a kind of almost revealed preference yes. that they actually think that there's nothing beyond us. Absolutely. And this is this is why I was so <laughs> Which is an extremely controversial claim. Yes, but it's not unprecedented and I'll try to explain why I think it's important. So like this is for me also why Hegel's philosophy of religion is very important because what he was interested in was that like in the actual practice of, say, religious congregations, you know, what's important in them is that you come together, you recognize one another, dignity, you hold each other accountable, you recognize together what's important, and you build social structures. And in that practice, you know, the actual object of devotion is like our life together, you know, in all its fragility and interdependence. And Hegel thought like, well, that's, that's great. But then, like, the religious understanding of that practice tends to be, well, yeah, but that's just a means towards serving God or earning salvation. And it's that part that we can let go of so as to fully recognize that, like, what really matters are the social practices we build and how we sustain our life together. You start with, and, and this this idea this is the idea, I think, that has stuck with me the most. And yeah. I'm speaking to you today. Tonight, I'm going to go sit Shiva for a, a very dear friend's father. I was just at a funeral for him um, on Sunday. He died fairly suddenly. And, then, and yeah. my, my friend has been a friend of mine from... Um, for 28 years and is part of the closest group of friends I have. So this is all very front of mind. But you start with the idea, basically, that heaven, the notion of an afterlife, can't but be unfree. Yeah. That a world, a universe, and a form of existence, unbounded by the finitude of time, as heaven would be, means that, like, in some deep sense, you're not free. Yes. What is, how, why? Yes, well, uh, several <laughs> Did I get that right? Absolutely, you got it absolutely <laughs> right. And because fundamentally, to be free in the most, I must say, is that there's a question of what you ought to do, you know, and that you can be at stake in what you do. So like, and to be able to ask yourself that question, what matters, what is important, what should I prioritize, what are my commitments? For anything to be at stake in that, it has to be possible that both, in relation to all those specific things, that they can be lost, that they have to be sustained, that they're finite in that sense. But also that I apprehend that, like, you know, I don't have all the time in the world to do everything. And that's precisely why I can express in practice that, like, I prioritize you. Part of what's so moving when someone commits to you for life is precisely that, like, you know, you know that this person doesn't have eternity to lead their lives and they're making you a priority. And you can only do that if you understand that you have limited time. I mean, time is finite. All decisions about how to use your time are fundamentally then zero sum because you can't allocate those seconds somewhere else. Because of that, that imbues the choices with meaning. The choices themselves are an an expression of what it means in your mind to be free. Yeah. And so an existence in heaven in which, by definition, you're not making those choices yeah. is unfree. Yes. And, you, and you, you can't even understand yourself really as an agent because, you know, if you don't have any sense of urgency, you know, that anything needs to be done, that precedes all the specific decisions you're making. So it's not just that you can't be free. You actually can't lead a life at all because there's nothing that binds that life. Okay. So the religious response to this, yeah. I think, would be, 
and I think probably William James would, yeah. who, you, who you cite, yeah. um, would would probably make this case, and others, uh, many many others, yeah. is that well, that's just a limitation of the sort of human perception, yes. right? Like all you're used to is being embedded in the finitude of time, yes. and in the same way that we can't like. There are certain parts of the visual spectrum that we can't see that we know are there. Yeah. We also know that like time in its sort of inherent structural sense isn't linear as the yeah. way we experience yeah. it, as yeah. Einstein first showed. That like you're just reducing all this to what we happen to perceive in these little clunky things we have. Yeah. And that there's some perceptual level of the existence of heaven that you just can't actually like articulate or apply the rules of sort of finitude and choice to? Right, right, right. Well, it's, it's a good question. and I appreciate the challenge. So the first thing to say is that this is also in the context of I'm trying to give a different account of why we even dream of an afterlife in the first place, you know, a dream of living on, you know, and that has to do with that, like, we're committed to our lives and we don't want to lose our loved ones and so on. And if that's the reason why you even think about something like eternity, then even if there was such a thing that you mentioned, it wouldn't actually give you what you want because it wouldn't allow your life to continue or your life with a beloved to continue. And that's one of the things I'm trying to show even with these religious writers when they're mourning. The problem there is not primarily that they don't believe in eternity, but they realize that like actually in an eternal life, I wouldn't get my beloved back because our life would be over. We would be you know, something that we can't even recognize. And what right. we want is like this life. Well, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, and that, that struck me like that is a sort of descriptive, almost anthropological point really hit me, which is that like what we want is for this life to continue yes. forever. Yes. But the very things that create meaning in this life yeah. are dependent on this life's finitude. Yes, exactly. That, that's exactly right. And that's why I make a, it's a very important conceptual distinction in the book between two things we often conflate, the desire to live on and the desire to be eternal. And we often think that, like, they're right. sort of on a continuum. But what I want to show is that, like, no. It, well, no, what we just want is, like, we want another extra 10 years ever, at every point. Yeah, and also, <laughs> yeah, and it's just not egotistical either, because it's like when, when we don't want our beloveds to die, or when we want we don't want the earth to go under, as is an imminent prospect, it's precisely because we want to sustain a form of life that is fragile. And it's the pathos of that that I want to capture in the book. You know, what does it mean that, like, you know, everything that matters, matters because we grasp in practice that it's a fragile form of life that we have to sustain. You sort of make another point, which is that, like, we all get that at some point. Yes. In practice, we do. We do. Like, because whatever we devote ourselves to, like the Chris Hayes show, you know, it's, you know, that's... <laughs> I think of it as my own personal heaven. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. And I'm glad you're letting others in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in practice, you know, sustaining that, you know, the Crusade show doesn't exist independently of you doing the show, people listening, people participating in this practice. And when you devote to something like that, you both grasp, you, you believe that it's important in itself, it's an end in itself, but you also grasp in practice that it's like, it's fragile, it will fall apart if you don't sustain it. So that's why we get that, like, to even care about something, we understand in practice that actually it's finite. But let's say you don't believe in an afterlife, right? Yeah. You believe that life is finite. When we die, we die. It's gone. We're yeah. gone. Um that happens to be my belief, yeah. uh, although it's a belief that I wish I didn't have. Yeah. <laughs> I would be much happier having having another belief. Um, but, but, you know, I got what I got. But uh, Well, the part of what the book wants to show you is that, you know, you don't have to regret that. No, in fact, and I've actually found – so I actually found like – I found a degree of spiritual comfort in, in sitting with this idea. Yeah. Because the, this question of like – and again, we're like now at the deepest part of yeah. – human existence like what's the meaning of our lives like yeah. what what does it mean why is it meaningful yeah. which also is a question of like why is it meaningful if a person dies or not doesn't die yeah. why is it meaningful if we like stop a drought or not yes i mean it enlarges from the sort of single subjective narcissistic question about yeah. like my life to like what we owe other humans and why it matters for us to like stop a famine yeah absolutely absolutely your basic argument is that the fragility itself is constitutive of the meaning absolutely that doesn't mean that's the only thing that makes it meaningful but it's just that like the fragility is, is an intrinsic part of it. And part of the reason I mobilize that argument is that there's a very, even among people who don't believe, who don't have religious beliefs, there's a very widespread tendency to think that like, well, okay, we're stuck with this finite life, but it's sort of a lack. It's in itself like means that we will never have the highest good because that would be to have something eternal, etc. And part of what I want to show is that actually like, no, the highest good is our life together. And this is as good as it gets and as important as it gets. Absolutely. And it's not that, of course, pain and death and suffering are good in themselves. But if you remove the risk of that, you know, if you remove the risk of death, you remove life. If you remove the pain, you would remove joy. You know, these things go together. And we need to start from like really, it would be more true to the conflicts we already living to see that like, well, we know this on some fundamental level, but we don't have the vocabulary to really make it explicit for ourselves. So I had a moment 
having sort of been somewhat immersed in the book where I was sitting with my uh, – I've had a few moments of this where I was like playing with my 20-month-old. Yeah. And just this this insight really hit me as I was playing with her of like – she's my third kid, so I know – I'm very aware of the developmental trajectory. Like yeah. I, I know how fleeting it is. Yeah. These little moments of like yeah. language discovery, they're so brief. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, mm. they're, there's a moment where they're like exploding linguistically and in the grand scheme yeah. of our collective lives, it's like five or six weeks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had this moment of like almost sort of a spiritual insight that like this is it. Yeah. Both my experience of this profound joy in this moment yeah. of being with her yeah. and also knowing that it's going by quickly Absolutely. combined are like what is the happiest I can be. Absolutely. And Very, but that's very sad. It's too. very sad, but it's also very like imagine you know only a mortal being could be responsive that's to correct. the preciousness of something like that. So you 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 know without a sense of precarity, you couldn't be responsive to something being precicious, something that's, being unique. Right, and Some, that's what you're saying is that mortality yeah. is a gift. Yeah, but it it's can, the it, constitutive it, gift. Yeah, absolutely, but it's, that doesn't mean that. You know, it can also shatter you. You know, I want to do of justice course. to that. You know, it's a condition for things being meaningful, but it's also a condition for things being you know overwhelming and unbearable. You know, but instead of thinking that we should just be released from that, we should acknowledge that vulnerability and learn to cultivate in our life together better ways of, of taking care of one another. And this is what you call secular faith. Yeah. So what is the difference? What's the sphere of the secular as opposed to the spiritual to you? Well, very, very importantly. So like, well, the distinction between the secular and the religious, because the spiritual for me is actually secular. But right. very important to say that, like, I'm using the word secular in the most capacious sense you can imagine. You know, so the Latin word for secular means like the historical the temporal, the worldly. So in that sense, like everything is secular in a certain sense because it's like, it depends on us. It's something we sustain, whether it's the institution we maintain, the show we're making, the communities we're building, the love relationships we have. All of these things are practices of secular faith because the object of faith depends on the practice. It doesn't exist without the practice. And that's true of religious practices too. But what I'm calling religious faith is the idea that there's an ultimate object of faith that doesn't depend on the practice, that exists independently, eternally, and that would be the highest good, whether you call that God or eternity or nirvana. Or, and that's the idea we should... And that's have. detached and above yes. in both value and meaning yes. from the mundane thing like I make my show every day. And secular faith has this movement that like both it commits and it grasps the fragility and that's part of what, what animates it. Well, what you're saying there is that yeah. like, well, what we do on this world matters. Yes, absolutely. No, it <laughs> right. matters absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think that there are, I mean, at the most extreme ends of certain religious traditions, right, which have like complete self-abnegation, yes. you know, monasteries and yeah. things that people really think that not just that like there's a higher being and a yeah. higher purpose in this world, but actually that this world is kind of like fallen. Right. And something to be kind of removed from. Yeah. There are certain religious traditions where the like extreme practitioners believe yeah. that. But most of us walk around all day like yeah. trying to love the people we love yeah, and yeah. be loved by them and sustain yeah. our projects. Yeah. And the idea of secular faith is just that, well, that's not second best. Uh, doing those things, you know, that anything that can matter will have that form of a practical activity that we have to sustain together and that can fall apart. But is there a practice above that? I mean, are you just saying that secular faith is just like the things we all do and that you're just giving it a label? Or is there something like the thing about faith, right? Yeah. The thing about religious faith and the thing that you mentioned before yeah. about yeah. how what, what Hegel's insight is yeah. on this, and it's yeah. true, William James yeah. as well. Yeah. The discipline routinization of practice actually is part of it. Like, is there something, is there a secular adjunct to that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And uh, well, the first thing to say is that even those aspects of, of Religious faith, I think, are better understood in secular terms. What's really religious is the idea that the ultimate goal is to reach a state that releases you from those practices. Right. You're not going to go to church in heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a very good point. And, and that's the idea we should let go of so as to recognize that the highest good is our fragile life together and not something above and beyond it. And I think there are resources to unearth that insight within religious traditions and religious thinkers, too. And that's part of what I'm trying to do. You talk about the idea of secular faith, but you also talk about a concept called spiritual freedom. And I want to get into that after this break. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. So you talk about spiritual freedom. Yes. Yes. What is spiritual freedom? Most fundamentally, unlike other animals, we're not just doing it. We can ask ourselves what is worth doing. You know, we can ask the question like what we ought to do and what is worth doing, what is valuable. You know, and, it's, and our ability to ask that question of like, what uh, should I do with my time? Yeah, what should I do with my time? What is worth prioritizing? You know, that's both something that characterizes us, us uh, as the kinds of beings that we are, but it's also a capacity that we can develop more or less reflectively, historically and socially. And I'm interested in that. What, say more about that. Well, you're saying the fact that we can pose that question to ourselves means that we can give different answers to it and act accordingly. Uh, yeah, both that and also that as we have historically come to grasp more fully that we are free beings who are answerable for our practices and to justify what we're doing. That's also owning more and more of our spiritual freedom, you know, that whatever you're doing, you're taking a stance on that question in practice, you know, what is worth doing. The fundamental thing here, right, is that if we accept finitude as not only the reality, but the highest reality there is. Yeah. There's not something above it. That finitude produces meaning is the constituent element for meaning to be made. Yes. Because it requires choices about what we do with our time. Then in your view, what you call spiritual freedom yeah. is a reflectiveness in us as both individuals and a society about what we're doing. Yes. But it doesn't just arise, importantly, when you take a step back and explicitly reflect. It's just that like... In practice, you know, you're always responsive to that question, you know, you know, am I wasting my time? What am I doing? We shouldn't see that hovering anxiety as, you know, something that's like, oh, I wish I could just bliss out. That's part of what it means to be a free being, <laughs> that you're actually fundamentally like so at the risk of failing, like, shit, I wasted five years of my life. That's, that's constitutive freedom. You have to run that risk. Otherwise, you know, uh, nothing could be at stake. So in the first 20 minutes here, we've redefined like, so like, Mourning and dread about the end of existence is constitutive freedom. The anxiety that you're spending your time wrong is constitutive yeah. freedom. Like all of the, you're like all of the things that hang over us as mortal beings yes. that like make us crazy or yeah. neurotic yeah. or fearful yeah. or anxious or yeah. depressed. Yeah. Like all of the stuff that, again, in the religious tradition, it's like this sort of very beautiful and elevated planning for an existence that doesn't have those things. Exactly. That's the whole point is yeah. to be liberated from it. Jesus dies on the cross. Yes. <laughs> he sacrifices himself up in the tradition that I yeah. come from yeah. so that we will be saved from all that. Yes. Although I have a And you're saying, and you're, what you're saying is like all of this stuff of mortality, like, yeah. That's it, baby. Like that's that's what you got, and that's and that's elevated, and that's actually like sublime in its own kind of way because it creates the conditions of flourishing and freedom that we have as mortals. Absolutely, absolutely, and this is true of like other living beings too. Part of what animates them is that they have to keep themselves alive. It's just that we can take that to a higher level where like we can engage those questions of why we're doing it and what we're doing it for. Although the other thing is that like when you talk about sort of animals and us, yeah, right? Yeah. And I mean. Then the next point is like we live our lives as animals a lot, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that is sort of, I think one of the things that I think either mindfulness traditions, which I think sit yeah. in between yeah. the sort of religious and secular yeah. in yeah. some ways, yeah. and outright religious traditions, right? Part of them are forcing mechanisms to get us to not be so stimulus response, right? Not to just sort of go through life the way that an animal does, right. in which. You know, the animal is seeking whatever, food and nourishment, and we're seeking food, nourishment, like the other things that will like fill the hole in our hearts, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever neuroses we have. Yeah. Great question. Let me just back up for, for one moment there, because it's very important that when I'm talking about us and I'm talking about spiritual freedom, that's not being an animal. It's just a distinctive way of being an animal and we're a unique kind of animal. And the big difference is that like, say I'm a lion, you know, mm -hmm. I'm on the savannah. I can experience all sorts of threats, experience things that's like, oh, that's, I should hunt the antelope, I should avoid this, you know, I can right. break my leg, that's like a tragedy. But what's not an issue for me is like what it means to be a lion, you know? I don't wake up one day and like, dude, why am I doing all this lion thing? This is bullshit. You know, I should do something different with my life. Uh, and that's why that, the lion is not spiritually free in my sense. We're spiritually free because in addition to all those specific problems in our environment, we are also engaged, continuing the question, who do I ought to be? What do I ought to do? What is worth doing? And that actually suffuses everything. So I don't think we ever are just 
animals in that sense. You know, I think that like that spiritual question of who we are and what we should do is like at work in everything. But it's also very sublimated often yes, in yes. terms of the front of mind concerns. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's also why like we are also unique. We are animals. It's in our nature to be socially formed. So the degree to which we can own these questions depends on how we're formed by our society. And there's certainly a lot of it that like makes us fall away from our capacity to engage these questions. What is your personal relationship to the way that you think about your own death with respect to this yeah. philosophical belief? Yeah. Like, does it make it easier for you to imagine that? I mean, the first thing I should say, for me, th there should be no boundary between the personal and the philosophical as it were. I, mean, I, I, I take it that, like, everything I write philosophically, I want to be completely answerable for in my personal life. So, I, so Well, that's why I asked you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so it's not that it, I think diminishes my pain at the loss of people I love or diminishes my anxiety, but it allows me to see, have a different perspective on it and grasp what is true about it and what is important about it and what, and thereby also I think have a better capacity to distinguish between what are just sort of like neurotic, obsessive ways of thinking about it and what are genuine ways of owning that anxiety and mm. that pain. In everything we care about, we care about how it lives on. Yes. This is again, so, so why do we care about what? But that's that's the question, right? Yeah. Like, why do we care about that it lives on? It's very important because th that testifies, I think, to the way in which we are essentially social beings. You know, that like what matters to us. It's easy for us to describe ourselves as we are just this like egoistic atoms who go around. You know, but I don't think that's true. You know, I think like everything that makes our lives meaningful already p point beyond our lives, even in our lifetime. You know, so many of our projects only make sense because they can be significant beyond our death and so on. So I think that's already built in. So that's why it's also natural to, like, be concerned about what happens. Right, that we're pulling the future backwards into the present at yes. all times, right? Yes, in the absolutely. way that we think about our goals and projects, when we think about our grandchildren, when we think about the, yes. you know, whatever we're going to do, the institutions we might build, the relationships. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you remove that, you know, I think it would, like, just completely alter the value structure you have. Right. I mean, that's the fear. Yeah. That's the fear of the of religious thinkers, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sort of the, the Dostoevsky line, yeah. which is often translated yeah. as if God is dead, all is permitted, yeah. is the idea that without some eternal that you're reaching forward, yeah. you end up in essentially a kind of ethical nihilistic black hole. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm explicitly trying to turn yes, around. Yes, you're arguing that. against that. Yeah, yeah, trying to turn around that in the book. So, so I take that very seriously. But that, it, And it's sort of the other way around. The reason why not everything, why things can actually be impermissible or unacceptable is precisely because there are irreversible consequences of what we do So and that they can't be redeemed in that religious sense. Just as how I treat you ethically can only matter because I grasp that you're fragile and finite, you know, and that, like, you know, that's the very core, the fragile soul that is Chris Hayes, you know, is something that, like, you know, can be damaged. And that's right. why I owe you respect. That's why I can take it that there's a dignity here that has to be paid its respects, you know. So all of those things, I think, are actually animated by a sense of finitude rather than a sense of eternity. So one of the turns that happens here yeah. is that when you talk about spiritual freedom, yeah. you talk about Marx. And this is a sort of fascinating part of the book. Yeah. By the way, the, 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 the entirety of the argument is like literally like a Fox News nightmare because it basically <laughs> is it's, it's essentially an if then argument where like P is atheism and Q is socialism. Yeah. And it's if basically if there is no God, then we're, then we're essentially collectively committed to socialism is essentially the form of the argument. Right. Yeah. Well, to fully come into our own as spiritually free would be to have that form of life. Yeah. Yeah. So. What is Marx doing in a discussion of spiritual freedom? Yeah, well, several things. I think that, like, if we define spiritual freedom as this, our ability to own the question of what is to do with our time, what is worth doing. I mean, I see that question as animating Marx's entire thought and his critique of capitalism. And he thinks that capitalism, on the one hand, made it possible for us to see that question in a new way, but doesn't allow us to individually and collectively really own that question and devote our lives to what we take to be intrinsically valuable and meaningful. Right. The response I kept having when you're talking yeah. about, well, we can decide what we want to do with our time. Yeah. It's like, well, we can't really decide what we want to do with our time. I yeah. mean, you know, we, are, we have these essential obligations that are put on us by the structure of society, by the way our economy functions, which is that like, you got to go to work yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. make money and put food on the table and all that stuff. Yeah. And those are... At some level, I guess, I mean, how do you see that in the context of this idea of, like, spiritual freedom and choice? So very importantly, when I say that we can ask ourselves this question, this doesn't mean that we can—freedom here is not just, like, 
I can do whatever without any constraints at all. Freedom here is being able to like identify with what I do and recognize myself as obligated to doing it. So freedom and free time here is not necessarily sitting back and doing nothing. It's doing something that you are committed to as an end in itself and that binds you to others that is dependent on all sorts of material and social conditions. So again, we do this twist that like it's not a restriction on freedom that you're dependent on others and that it's not like fully free. That's that's what allows it to be something. Right. But there's also a deep sense of unfreedom in both in Marx's critique yeah. and in the lived reality of people's lives. Absolutely. Right. I mean, capitalism, absolutely. right. Yeah. I mean, we think like, oh, I have to hold this job, which I hate. And every day I go by and I spend eight hours there yes. feeling like my soul is withering and my life is, I'm not describing myself just yeah. for, the, for, for the, for the record. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, some days, yeah. but, but, yeah. but like that is the condition. I mean, and not just, let's just be clear, not just under capitalism, yes. like under many forms of instantiated socialism. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, under pre-capitalist well, absolutely, modes, of, absolutely, modes of production, yeah. as, of course, Marx yeah. recognizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. the real freest part in human history, yeah. which people don't realize, yeah. but it's amazing, is like before the agricultural revolution. Uh, maybe. I <laughs> well, here's why. Because what we now know about those people, right? So there's like several hundred thousand years in which before civilization, agricultural revolution yeah. happens, in which like we're roaming around. Yeah. And like all the evidence suggests that like that was actually a much more efficient way to get food. People had longer lifespans. They didn't have to do a lot of work every day. Like hunting and gathering is actually way better than subsistence farming. Like that was that was the maximal at some levels, like that mode of production and living, which eventually went away because like for a bunch of complicated reasons, was actually the, the freest. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting <laughs> perspective because I just want to be clear here that, like, even though it's important to see that there were other ways of producing and sustaining ourselves, you know, it's still the case that, like, capitalism is a form of progress that hasn't completed itself because one of the things that it reveals and that you don't have in that society is that, like, you're still defined by your social roles in a certain way, like you're a hunter, you're a gatherer, That's you know, true, which, yes. which, is, which is a restriction on, like, owning this question of, like, what you're committed to, what you ought to do. Yes. And, it's, and it's that promise of like... Yes, you can't move to the city to be a DJ yes. uh, if you're yes. a hunter-gatherer. So there are certain forms of freedom of expression and uh, that are cut off from you in that society. And that hasn't even come into view as right. a question, you right. know? So, right. so because like it's only... So that limit you think is as, like that capitalism creates the horizons for this incredible vista of spiritual freedom of things we could do. Yes, but for reason I explained the book, and takes know, it back away. Yeah, from it, us. it can't fulfill it, and it, it contradicts those ideals themselves. But there's something, even though there's a very deep critique in my book of the very form of wage labor and so on. It's also like one should think about what that means historically, because it means that we have a separation for the first time between like, first of all, you you recognize as owning your lifetime, and that there's a distinction between the social role you're fulfilling and you know what you could do in your free time. Well, and even in the the notion of a wage embedded yeah. in the hourly wage yeah. is literally. A value that's placed on time. Exactly. <laughs> and this is a very detailed argument in the book. That uh, recognition of our time as valuable is also then contradicted under capitalism because, you know, what we value is like that as a way of making a profit, you know, rather than as like freeing up more time to lead our lives. You know? So so that's, that, that's an important aspect of the book that like that what that should lead to is that, for example, when technological developments allow us to free up more time to do the things that are meaningful and valuable, that doesn't generate any value on the capitalism because, you know, it doesn't produce any profit and any commodities and so on. Well, there's the Keynes book that he writes yeah. about the future, right? Yeah. The Economic Consequences or Grandchildren, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. There's a period of time in which in the 19th century, 1920 or so, where there's this idea that, like, everyone's going to have so much free time in the future yeah. because – mechanization and efficiency will mean like all the material needs will be taken care of after like three hours of work and then we'll all knock off and like go do stuff. Yeah. It didn't quite work out that way. No. And what I'm trying to show is that that's not accidental. That it can't work that way. Under capitalism, it can't work out that way. And that's part of my, Why not? my, Why not? Part of my critique of Keynes. Well, because it has to do with like how we generate wealth in the first place under capitalism. You know, So how we measure social wealth is not in terms of like how fast we actually can produce things or how much time we can actually have. We measure it in terms of like private corporations making profits that we then tax and redistribute as wealth. You know? And the more time that is devoted to not producing commodities that are profitable for an individual corporation, all of that time is like literally worthless under capitalism. Right, it's Even, off the books. Yes. <laughs> but if we had a different measure of social wealth, we would actually be wealthier in an existential sense when we had more time to lead our lives and when we actually produced the goods that we needed. I mean, I think about this in the very concrete sense of yeah. just like vacation time in America. I mean, we don't have guaranteed vacation in America. It's, I think, the only OECD country that has no zero like legal requirement of vacation. Yeah. True also of maternity leave that like 
I think particularly as you get to middle age, which I'm, I guess, in. Really? <laughs> I don't know. My wife hates it when I say middle age because I always say it as like almost this like weird like it's like half tongue in cheek and half like I'm 40. But yeah. your appreciation of of time, particularly time off, gets way, way, way more acute, you know, because it's like particularly because of the time pace of a child's life is so fast and their developments are so fast and you can feel it rushing ahead of you. And like every parent you talk to, they always say, and God bless them because I say it too. It's like, go so fast, go so fast, go so fast. Like, I know, I know, I know. Okay. I am very aware of how fast it's going. And because it's going so fast, it's like, I just want to spend a lot of time with them. You only get this once. And Weekends, vacation, like that's what you get. You know, I work till I get home at 10 o'clock every night. So I, I miss my kids every night, week five nights a week. They're in bed. Yeah. I get to see them in the morning. I even think about this. I get to see them for an hour. Like they right. get up and then they're off to school in an hour. So I get an hour every day. Right. And I'm getting an hour every day, five days a week for right now, like some of the heart of their childhood, you know, and then that's just not recoverable. And the system we have does not. I don't know. What am I saying? We should all have more vacation, I guess, is my like profound insight at the end of this whole thing. But actually, that like vaca- here's what I want to say. Yeah. Vacation sounds trivial. It sounds like leisure. It sounds like a thing like, oh, you get this much. It's like, that's the that's it. That's the stuff, yeah. actually. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, several important things in this. I think that like this stark opposition we have under our form of life between like work time and vacation time or free time, that's itself you know, a sort of alienated relation to what we do because free time in my sense is, can be like, you know, you're working really hard, but for something that like you recognize the the importance and worth of, you know, but the important thing should be that like the way we measure our social wealth and has to do with like producing, not for the sake of profit, but for the sake of time for people to devote themselves to what they recognize as truly important. That, and that includes both working for the common good, but also taking care of your children or all of these things. So. And there's a famous Marx quote about yeah. this, right? About what does he say about the sort of under communism, you yeah. can be a fisher by day and a critic at night. And I think I've, I've mentioned this once before with Astor Taylor when she had her on the podcast, but it's always struck with me, right? Like he's got this idea that like you yes. go about your day and you do these different things that you, you know. But very importantly, those are not hobbies, you know. Those are things that are pursued with like dedication and commitment. So, you know, you could be in one sense, working as much as we're doing now, but it's qualitatively different because, you know, you can recognize that, you know, I'm doing this not because otherwise I'm not going to have a wage, I'm going to die, but because I take this to be important for reasons I can specify, which include both the common good and my own life. Right. But the the argument, right, on the the capitalist would make is that the profit and wage system produce incentives to structure our behavior in such a way that it actually produces a tremendous amount of surplus and social bounty. And that in the absence of that, like, People wouldn't be doing the things that like made things like, say, washing machines, which took the time it took to wash clothes from two and a half to hours down to like 10 minutes of loading the machine, which was an incredible material gain and also like fundamental existential gain Absolutely. for particularly the women yes. uh, who, who had been sort of tasked with yes. like the insane drudgery of washing things. Right. Yes. Like that is the argument that like the incentive structure that you're critiquing. Yes is the incentive structure that produces the kinds of innovations that actually yield yeah. all of these amazing things that save us time that, per, that, you know. Yes, and very important. So here's the thing. One thing we have learned from the capitalist mode of production is besides that we're capable of that sort of, say, technological innovation. But then the point is what we should learn in turn from that lesson is that at the end of the day, if our technologies are developed, if I'm, say, a capitalist, I develop a new technology, I'm not developing it for, like, what's the most time-saving way for everyone? You know, can do, No, I'm developing it to, to make a profit, and that will already distort how I develop those technologies and not optimize them in the way they could right, be. Right, but that's, it's that incentive structure that produced the innovation. Well, that, <laughs> that's part of what the book is contesting, and this is a long argument in the book, but that's to say that, like, the original incentive to create technologies in the first place. The washing machine. Well, for example, but already like primitive technologies much earlier. The only way that makes sense, the only way that's intelligible is because you're committed to having more time to lead your life, what I'm calling socially available free time, you know, because we would have never invented any technologies in the first place unless we said like, this is a cost for us. Right. Uh, And so that's the original incentive that is (laughs) both recognized and distorted under capitalism. Right. So the the hunter-gatherer, right, Mm -hmm. is like, obviously there's no no profit and there's no wages. And yet they still like figure out a way to make an arrowhead. And the reason they do is because like that's a more efficient way of yeah, of doing something that is not just a mere means to an end, but something that's intrinsically meaningful. And that's very interesting about it. This is another aspect of our spiritual freedom. It's not just that, unlike animals, we can ask ourselves what it's worth doing. We can actually 
free up more time. We can ask ourselves the qualitative question, what is worth doing? But then quantitatively, we can increase how much time we have through technologies and so on. And that's only understandable because we're committed to what I'm calling free time. Right. So your argument is that the innovations of technology that happened before capitalism are evidence of the fact that we have this drive to do that almost out of that same place of kind of a quest for spiritual freedom. Yes. Absolutely. But the way that comes into its own historically and socially depends on all sorts of factors. And, and, and there are things we've learned about ourselves and how we should not do things via capitalism. And, and then, like, I try to specify the principles for a form of life that would actually be able to own up to that commitment. All right. So if we take seriously the finitude of this life yeah. as constitutive of the meaning, and then we have our spiritual freedom is our ability to reflect on our choices of how to spend that finite time. And we are maximally spiritually free to the extent that we have maximal freedom in making those choices, right? And also, insofar as we participate in institutions that we can recognize as devoted to the principles to which we ourselves are committed, not to profit, but to save the common good. To the common good, okay. So then what would this, what are the principles then for what that society that collectively took this seriously would look like? Well, first of all, I'm not, of course, blueprinting this, but I'm trying to specify the principles that, that would be in place. And the first would be that our positive measure of value would actually not be how much labor time we have to spend, but it would be like how much social, what I'm calling social available free time we have. So like we would be dedicated to both creating institutions that allow people to educate themselves in such a way that they can take responsibility for that question. And we, and also build technologies that would like reduce the time for those activities that we all recognize as necessary, but that no one wants to do for their own sake. But then the material condition for having such a measure of value is that actually like, the means of production are not used for profit because as long as they are, you're not going to produce in view of that common social good. You're going to produce to, right. to, to generate a profit. And that's why, and that doesn't mean that like there has to be a mega state that owns everything. It just means that you can't produce for profit. And right. you're also not working for a wage because that distorts our free relation to the activity. I should be doing things because I see why they need to be done and why they're important to do. This is a radical social transformation. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm not deeply denied. radical. Deeply <laughs> radical. But I think for me, the important thing with the book is to both to explain what the contradictions are in the form of life that we're living to, under and where we are committed to going if we're committed to freedom and then holding open the painful questions that open. Yeah. One critique of academics often yeah. on this is that like, well, academics are sort of a little bit insulated from the profit sector and they yeah. get to like yeah. think and write all day. So they want everyone to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I see it a bit different. I say precisely because... I happen to be fortunate that I get to think about these things, then part of my responsibility is to reflect on what are the conditions that prevent everyone from having this sort of freedom. I don't see it as an insulation at all, but to actually like think through these fundamental questions. And that's not sufficient, I'm painfully aware, but I think it's necessary to have those resources if we're going to think about what we're going to do going forward. What do, what do religious people say to you when they read the book? Well, it varies a lot, actually. I've gotten a lot of response. I've been really happy that I've gotten a lot of response to the book both from sort of professional philosophers and academics, but also from a lot of general readers. And it really varies. I think for some religious people, it's hard to, they get very provoked initially, so it can be hard to see the argument, but I've been heartened to see how many of them actually like, oh, it's so nice to see someone engaging with religion uh, who is arguing against, but who's taking it seriously and wants to like give an account of the same kind of practices and values and so on. So, So that's actually been, and that's part of what I'm saying in the book too. I, you know, it's an invitation. It's both addressed to secular people to see why, why you don't have to feel that you have second best because you don't have religious faith. And then to religious people like, well, here's a different way of thinking about what you already take to be valuable and why your life matters that actually doesn't require this transcendent God to ground it. You know, I mean, there's this sort of part of it has to do with the just profound fact about humans, which I sort of I think have only, only recently come to wrestle with, which is that like. We're born into this world completely helpless yeah. in a just definitional sense, actually can't do anything on our own. Yeah. Like you can't start human life at T zero yes. and get anywhere without other without other humans. In rare cases, like wolves or like monkeys can yeah. actually play that role yeah. or dogs. Yeah. But like someone's got to raise you. Yes. And that's not true of other animals yes. in the sense that like other animals are born. They can walk. There's a lot more they yes. can do. But we are from the second that we emerge fundamentally dependent creatures. Yes, this is so important. And this is why when I'm talking about spiritual freedom, it's not supernatural at all. It's intimately bound to the specific way in which we are natural beings, you know? It's in our nature to be socially formed. And that partly has to do with that, like, unlike other animals that we know of, 
we don't know what we're supposed to do or who we're supposed to be. We have to create tools and all sorts of stuff to even get around, you know. Again, this is another thing that can look like, shit, I wish we were just hardwired like other animals. But that we're not is also what allows us actually developmentally right. to be able to own this question of, uh, of spiritual freedom. I'm wondering how this work and, and working on this and thinking about this has changed your life, your habits, your practices. Yeah, I mean, several ways. So, like, on the one hand... And this, I guess, answers to both the individual and the social aspects of the book. On one level, the way in which these questions of commitment and fragility are at stake in my own life, I think I'm, I'm attuned to that differently. I'm allowed, able to own those conflicts and issues in a different way. But then on the social level, I have to say, when I was really working hard on the second half of the book, and you're really thinking with Marx, and you get a very clear sense of the contradictions and forms of exploitation, commodification that makes possible every aspect of my life. It's extremely painful to be very cognizant of that and think through what it would require to transform that. So, so writing the second book, I think, changed my understanding very deeply of the world I live in in very painful ways. But it also felt important to like own up to and make explicit that pain. Right, because so much of your freedom is dependent on other people's yeah. unfreedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. The, the, the iPhone that we pulled that like, oh, this is great. This allows me to like more efficiently make plans. And it's like, well, someone was in the factory in Shenzhen making yeah. this just 14 hours the, a day. Just as the welfare state that I grew up in was only possible because first Europe had been bombed out so we can make a profit of that. And our corporations could make profit on that low wages in other parts of the world that then became our wealth. And to see those, the ways in which like, under capitalism, that sense of social wealth, even when it's distributed in that way, is produced by those relations. It's a very tough thing to counter. But if you can understand anything about the world we live in, one has to take all of that into account. And I'm trying to explain those arguments in Marx, both very rigorously and accessible in the book. You just mentioned yeah. the sort of social democratic model of your yeah. of your native Sweden yeah. and, and Scandinavia, which is often invoked in American political debates about possible models of American social democracy, yeah. which you're saying are actually built atop a, you know, a hill of misery. So, <laughs> yeah, that's not to dismiss it. That's right, not right. to dismiss it. Just as I don't re dismiss reform, but I don't think we should conflate it. We both have to understand why. And this took me a long time to understand because I grew up in the last heyday of that form of life. Uh, but you know, if you're going to advocate not just as a relatively better, but actually as a model, viable model, it has to be globally generalizable. And we know that, like, if everyone had been welfare states, then we couldn't have generated the wealth that supported right, our welfare that's, state. Right, that's part of the problem. Yeah, that's yeah. a very important part of the problem. And that then really brings home, so, so Hegel has the beautiful things. That's like, no one is free until everyone is free. And that's the most revolutionary idea there ever was. And Marx really explains to us like, well, what that obligates us to, the sort of transformation on a global scale, it would require to actually own up to that idea, with, which many of us would pledge ourselves to. But what what it demands of us in practice is very radical, and that's part of what I'm trying to explain. There's always um, these like uh, studies about how like Scandinavians are happier, Swedes are happier. <laughs> You're laughing, but it's true. There's like I feel I'm like smiling. Yeah. 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 Do you think that's true? I think that in relative terms, for a long time in Scandinavia, we had societies that were less deformed by capitalism, you know, and, and that we're also very secular. So, so I think that, that there's a general level of well-being just in relative terms greater than other parts of the world. But one has to see that that has very specific conditions. And if one wants to think responsibly about this on a global level, uh, one has to like then have an account of something that would make such well-being both be more profound and also more globally distributed. I guess the last question here is, the last sort of objection or the thing I yeah. thought about is like, if I am, because of the forms of material production we have, yeah. required to spend a lot of my time doing things I would not choose to do yeah. out of obligation, I think for a lot of people, like, the realm of God and the realm of the eternal is like a thing that that demand can't get to. And the place that I think we see this most profoundly is in the incredible spiritual tradition of American slaves, yes. right? So the ultimate example of a complete lack of material freedom, like literally properly in the eyes of the state and enforced through violence and terrorism, yeah. that that spiritual tradition was all about basically building a wall around some part of yourself that was connecting to something other than what the earth yes. and its institutions had brought down upon your shoulders. Yes. Isn't that something you we shouldn't take away or even think about taking away. Yes. 
this is such an important point and such an important question. It allows me to clarify something that's very important to the book and why the Marx part is also so important to the book. Because if the critique here of religious ideas of salvation was, you know, not accompanied by the demand to transform our social conditions, transform the sorts of injustices to which religions respond, it would be really empty and patronizing. The important point for me, though, is precisely to see that, like, if people dream of the beyond in that way and raise those sorts of walls, it doesn't have to do with that, like, some intrinsic drive to eternity or heaven. It has to do with, like, the supreme unbearability of material and social conditions, you know? And those are the ones we should be committed to transforming. And I'm not going around saying like, oh, we should just go out now and rob everyone, people of their beliefs. We should transform our life together, but also have an account of why this life could be the highest good. And that's why like the reason that people in slavery can, you know, need faith in God, that's not a reason to promote faith in God. It's also not a reason to take it away, but it's a, it's a reason to abolish slavery. It's certainly a reason. Yeah. Right, yes. right, right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. The profound unfreedom. Yes. Right. Your point is that from the, from the ethical point of view that you're prescribing the book, yeah. the profound unfreedom and evil of slavery is yeah. all the more readily apparent yeah. and the requirement ethically to abolish it and get rid of it is all the more apparent. Absolutely. And, and, and I understand why out of that sort of despair, that sense of a wall or that, that there is something else that this can't touch, I understand and I deeply empathize with where right. that is coming from. But that is, for me, a reason to abolish slavery, not right. to right. think that we will always have to believe in God. Martin Hagland is a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale. The book, uh, which you really should check out, uh, it's, as you can tell, profound. We really covered a lot today. Uh, so it's much. called This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. Martin, thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Uh, once again, my great thanks to Martin Hagland. The name of the book is This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom. He's a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale. Um, if you like the conversation, the book has a lot. It develops the arguments at, at much greater uh, length and depth, and I would uh, suggest you you pick it up. Update on our live with Pod Tour. We have posted a new set of standing room only tickets for the Chicago show, which is on November 12th. It's going to feature me, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the award-winning journalist, magazine writer at the New York Times Magazine and mastermind behind the incredible 1619 Project, and Ibram Kendi, academic and author most recently of How to Be an Anti-Racist. We'll be talking about legacy of slavery, structural racism, and anti-racism in the 21st century. It's going to be a great conversation. It's at House of Blue Chicago. Go to Ticketmaster.com and search my name, and you can find place, a place to buy tickets if there are still any left by the time you're listening to this. One note, the event starts at 8.30 Central. Doors open at 7.30. So if you got the email and you, you're freaked out because you think, I can't get there that early, I can't either. I'm doing a show. <laughs> I'm hosting All In with Chris Hayes, which is a, a cable news television show I do five nights a week on MSNBC from 7 to 8 Central. So I, I'm going to get there at 8.30 at the, at the earliest. I'm going to race over there. So 8.30 is when the show actually begins. As always, love to hear your feedback. You can tweet us, hashtag withpod, email withpod at gmail.com. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In team, and features music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here by on nbcnews.com slash why is this happening. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.